People often take symbols that God gives and they distort them and they manipulate them. But God in the Bible uses the rainbow as an expression of His amazing sovereign grace. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've moved into the prophetic section of the book of Revelation. If you've been with us for the past several weeks, you know that chapter 1 dealt with the past, chapters 2 and 3 deal with the present, in particular the different types of church bodies that are professing the name of Christ, and chapters 4 through 22 are largely prophetic. And this section of Scripture begins with a marvelous vision of heaven. As we pick up in our message entitled, A Glimpse of Heaven, Dr. Brogy notes that in the future, heaven will literally come down upon a recreated earth. One of the truths that we're struck with in this chapter is that heaven is not a figment of someone's imagination. It's a very real place. When we come to the end of the book, we're going to learn that the place people go today is called by many names, paradises, paradise, the Father's throne, so forth. I mean, the Father's house, uh, heaven. That place is going to literally, the new Jerusalem, heaven, is going to literally come down and become the capital city of a brand new planet. The current earth that we live on, God is going to burn with fire. But God's going to take the capital city, heaven, and bring it down. It's a very real place. There's real people. There's real streets. There's real travel. There's real gates. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you all, come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's talking about a real place. And the average person knows very little about heaven. They think of it as a place with wispy clouds and we're playing harps. And for all of eternity, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do in our boredom. Nothing could be further from the truth. By the time we're done, I hope you will have a clear conceptual picture of what heaven is really like. And so I say that this first is a picture of the Father and His government because the throne is a symbol throughout the Bible of the rule and reign and authority and government of God. Now remember, we learned in the opening verse that the revelation was communicated, and we saw on the margin, signified. The word signified, the first four letters were sign, S-I-G-N. The revelation is signified. So there are many symbols that God uses all the way through the revelation. And in Scripture, you find what's called Christophanies. That's when Christ appears before the incarnation in the Old Testament. But there's also some theophanies. Theos, God. A theophany is an appearance of God. For instance, in Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham. And so this is an, a theophany of, of sorts. Obviously, God is spirit, so he doesn't need a throne to sit on. But God will often wrap himself in human characteristics so that we can get a handle of what he's like. When the Bible says the arm of the Lord is not short, he doesn't have a literal arm. When it says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, God the Father doesn't have literal eyes. Those are anthropomorphisms. Those are human characteristics ascribed to God so that we can better understand what he is like. But thrones in the Bible symbolize authority. And what's communicated here is that God's government, God's rule, God's sovereignty as at work during this time. We're told in verse 2 uh, that this throne is standing. Now that's important for John to hear. 
Because remember, as we come to the end of the age, the Bible predicts that ultimately things will not get better. Things will get worse. There'll be a downgrade in human behavior. People will become more hateful, more violent, more aggressive, more sinful. Men's hearts will grow cold. And then after the church is removed and the last vestige of light and salt is gone from the earth, all hell is going to break loose. And so John will need to remember that as he receives these truths, that there's a throne that is standing, that God is in charge, that while sin appears to be winning, God in the end will overrule. History, we used to say, is his story, and indeed it is. And so the events that will unfold are given from the vantage point of heaven, that the events on earth are not capturing God by surprise that there's never an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity, that God is not wringing his hands up in heaven and saying, do you see that? You see what they're doing down there? Man, I didn't know that was going to happen. He is in absolute control and he knows what is happening. And verse one says these events, note, must take place and they will take place because God has planned the future. Now, there's a new theology that has come into evangelicalism. It's called open theism. And unfortunately, what was once a great evangelical press, InterVarsity Press, can no longer be trusted. And so sometimes they put out books on open theism. Open theism that is being taught in a lot of American evangelical churches says that God doesn't know everything. It basically says that while God doesn't know how things will turn out, he knows all the potential options, but it's all dependent on us. Listen, God is in control, and if God doesn't know everything, you've got a lot to fear. We're in big trouble. Some people are teaching today that man is dictating what is going to happen in the future. Look, if man is dictating what is going to happen in the future, it is a colossal failure from his past. If Adam and Eve couldn't pull it off in a perfect environment, I can tell you right now, fallen man won't make it happen. But God is sitting on the throne. That means he's in power, he's in authority. We use the term today, we speak of a congressman who's been seated. That is, he's in office. Or we speak of someone who lost the election, that he was unseated. And so God is seated on the throne, and that is going to be emphasized and underscored all the way through the revelation that God knows what he is about, and he is in absolute control. So the Father is great in his government, but also the Father is great in his glory, The first half of verse 3 we read, And he was sitting, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. So John sees the Father seated on the throne, but his figure is somewhat lost in this display of dazzling light. It's a description of God in one sense without really being a description. Notice, no form is given because no form can be given. The Bible says that God dwells in, in unapproachable light. No man can see God and live, the Scripture says. We can see His glory. And had not the Lord Jesus tabernacled among us, and He became flesh, the Bible says, and dwelt, the word dwelt is tabernacled. God tabernacled among us, literally it says. Had the Lord Jesus not taken on our humanity, you could not have looked upon Him before the incarnation and lived. And so the Father was sitting... And his appearance is like the jasper stone and also a sardius in appearance. 
So John is using this vivid, descriptive uh, similes. It's like or it's the appearance of in order to describe the Father. Now, the jasper stone is not some opaque stone. We know that from Revelation chapter 21, 11. It's a clear stone. It's probably, who knows, maybe a diamond. The Bible says in that chapter, it is crystal clear. So it speaks of radiance and brilliance and translucence. And in many ways, it's a reflection of God's holiness. But not only does he speak of the jasper stone, around the throne, there's another stone, a sardius in appearance. The sardius is ruby red. Why would God have a ruby red sardius type of light around the throne? Because of the blood of Christ. You say, I get that for Jesus. How do I get that for the Father? The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, we don't worship three gods. We worship one God. And the members of the Godhead are inseparable. You say, how could the cross be a demonstration of the Father's love? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. How is that an expression of God's love? If he loved us so much, why didn't he come down and die? Because the members of the Godhead are so inseparable that for Jesus to die, for him to give of himself, it's a demonstration of the Father's love. To see me, Jesus said, is indeed to see the Father. And so we will dig deeper concerning these stones, and I'll save it for later when we come to the end of the book. But I just want to briefly mention them. We could also mention that the high priest wore a, a tablet with 12 stones on that tablet. And the first stone was the jasper stone, and the second and the last stone was the sardius. And it was a reminder to Israel that God had the people of Israel on his heart. So God's great in his government. He's great in his glory. Third, the Father is great in his grace. He's great in his grace. Look now, if you will, further into verse 3. And he who is sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. In other words, around the throne are the colors of a rainbow, and a rainbow would immediately make the believer think of God's incredible grace. Occasionally, when I fly on an airplane, I get to see a 360-degree rainbow. Some of you have seen that from a jet. That's the only place you can see it on the earth, up in the sky. No doubt John never saw a rainbow from the sky that was 360 degrees. But the term that's used here describes a circle. He's seen a circular rainbow around the throne. And it's like an emerald. It's green. And green in Scripture is a significant color because it's the color of life. And so God has this rainbow that is round that describes, in essence, the eternal life, that he's an eternal being, and when you believe on him, he gives you eternal life. Now, remember that the rainbow was God's promise that he would never flood the world again. Now, he will destroy the world a second time, but the means will be different. The Bible says he'll burn it with fire, and at that point, it will be gone. There will be no people on it. They will have all been removed, and he'll consume the whole world with fire. In a moment's time, it will be gone, and he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. But the rainbow in Scripture for right now is a symbol of the grace 
of God Almighty. Uh, recently, I was speaking at a World Religions Conference with Ken Ham, and uh, here's a picture of the ark. And he decided to light it up at night in the rainbow, and I thought this would be a helpful shot. And, and of course, it made the LGBTQ community go nuts. They are so mad at him. He has to have 24-hour security at this ark. He's got a special antenna. He brought me on the roof of it. Special antenna. I said, what's that thing up there? He said, that's a drone killer. What's that? He said, if a drone flies anywhere in our airspace, it disables a drone and makes it fall from the ground. I said, where'd you get that? The Israeli government gave it to us. Mm. All right. Here's the thing. There are people that hate them so much, they're afraid that one of these drones will drop some explosives on the place. And so I was in New England recently, and I saw this church, and of course, uh, on the front of it was love, a banner of love, and then the rainbow flag, and their message was, we love homosexuals and their lifestyle. We love homosexuals, and drunks, and prostitutes, and drug addicts, and anybody is welcome here. Now, to be a member, it's a different story. But God calls homosexuality sin. And so people often take symbols that God gives and they distort them and they manipulate them. But God in the Bible uses the rainbow as an expression of his amazing sovereign grace. So the person sitting on the throne is great in his government, great in his glory, and great in his grace. Let's also think about the persons positioned before the throne, the persons who are positioned before the throne. I want you to notice carefully the various personages that are found here at the throne of God, three distinct groups. First, the elders of the church are present. The elders of the church are here. In verse 24, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, some commentators, not wanting the church to be raptured before the great tribulation, say these are not 24 church saints. These are 24 angels. Now, that's a stretch because these 24 elders are sitting on thrones, indicating that they are reigning with Jesus. And Jesus promised his church in a number of places and through the various writers of the New Testament that those who live with him will rule with him, that we will someday reign with Christ. Angels are never seen as reigning with Christ. In fact, their role, the Bible says in Hebrews 1, is to serve as ministering spirits sent out to render service for those who will inherit salvation. But the church has repeatedly promised co-regency with Christ. In addition, the word is elders, presbyteroi. In Greek, it's never used of angels. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation, it's used of the leaders of Israel. And in the New Testament, it's used of the leaders in the church. And it's usually used in reference to, to men who are older in age. So it's somewhat of an oxymoron to speak of older angels because angels don't age. In either case, uh, these are the elders of the church. It reminds me of a little girl who went to church one Sunday and she came back. Her mom in the car said, well, what did you learn today in honey, honey in church in Sunday school? She said, well, we're studying the book of Revelation. What did you learn in the Revelation? We found out that only 24 Presbyterians will go to heaven. <laughs> I'm not sure there'll be that many, but no, I'm just kidding. Now, now that I've alienated all the Presbyterians, it's noteworthy 
that these are church saints. Now, certainly angels can be in white, but white garments are more commonly associated with believers, and that's certainly true in the immediate context. We just read in Revelation 3.5 of the believers in Sardis who are dressed in white garments, or Revelation 3.18, the lukewarm Laodiceans who needed white garments. And of course, uh, crowns are never promised in the Scripture to angels, Crowns are only promised to believers, not just leaders in the church, but any Christian. There are crowns, five that are listed in the New Testament, that you as a Christian can earn. Now, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but as you yield your life to Jesus Christ and you make yourself available for the Holy Spirit to work through you, in eternity, God will reward with you with a number of crowns. In addition, the number 24 in the Bible is a representative number of a larger group. For instance, in 1 Chronicles 24, there are 24 officers of the sanctuary. And as you read that passage of Scripture, you recognize that they uh, represent a number of thousands of priests. In 1 Chronicles 25, there's 24 divisions of singers that represent a number of mass choirs. 24 do not represent angels. These represent the church who have gone through the open door, who've been caught up and raptured in our now in the presence of Christ. Listen, you just let Scripture interpret Scripture. And God has not destined us for wrath. He has destined us for salvation. And so again, as this slide underscores, there's 24 thrones, 24 elders representative of the church are sitting on them. They're in white garments and they are given crowns. Those are terms that describe the church. So the elders of the church were present. In addition, the seven spirits of God are present. The seven spirits of God are also present. We read now in verse 5, out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now remember, as we studied in Revelation 1.1, this book is signified. It's communicated in symbols. And when you read this, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, when I read that, my mind immediately went back to Moses up on top of Mount Sinai. Why don't you write out in the margin Exodus 19, 18, and 19. Exodus 19, 18, and 19. And let me read it to you. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. 38 years later, at the end of Moses' life, he recounts this experience, and he records it in Deuteronomy 4. There he says, Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sounds of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. And in the New Testament, that gives us divine commentary on this. In the book of Hebrews, he looks back at this event and he writes this, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was much like that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. So Moses spoke of a mountain that was covered in smoke and lit by flashes of lightning and the earth shook and sounded like thunder and it was so overwhelming the sounds that the people of Israel begged that they would hear no more. And so 
these flashes of lightning, these thunderclouds, as it were, are underscoring that there is a big storm that is about to be unleashed. In the fifth chapter, the scroll will be handed to the sun. And in the sixth chapter, we will begin to study the seven seals, beginning with the four horses of the great apocalypse. In heaven, the storm is over. There's a rainbow. There's peace. But what is about to happen on the earth is absolutely indescribable. The age of grace will have ended, and the age of God's wrath will begin. And the people will say in the sixth chapter, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Look at verse 5. And after there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, here's another reference to the Holy Spirit. The next slide shows us from Isaiah 11. We studied this already, that there are seven attributes in ministries of the Holy Spirit that will be seen in the Messiah's life. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven characteristics Likewise, the prophet Zechariah gives a similar description concerning the person and ministry of the Spirit. Let me dust off your minds with that text. Zechariah 4. What do you see? The angel asked Zechariah. What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, and its bowls on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which were on top of it. Also two olive trees by it. One on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to him, Do you not know what these are? And he said, No, my Lord. Then the angel responds and he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by my power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That is the promise that God's seven lamps would not only function through Messiah, but now today is functioning through the church. And there is an untold of reservoir of power as seen by the two olive trees habitually feeding these seven lambs. God will meet you. God will empower you. But here is a picture of the Spirit of God here in Revelation 4 before the throne. This is a, a Trinitarian picture as we're going to see before we're done with these two chapters of Father, Son, and Spirit. The seven spirits of God. We don't believe in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven spirits. We believe there is one Holy Spirit. But there are seven expressions or attributes that are underscored. And we're going to see him appear over and over and over again some 14 times here in the book of Revelation. Now remember, this is a scene of judgment, of fire and lightning. And God is about ready to unleash his wrath upon the earth. Right now, the Spirit's ministry is in grace as He is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But there's coming a time when He will deal like the other members of the Godhead with people in wrath. And at the great white throne judgment, the Bible says, every mouth will be shut. There'll be no excuses when all the lost people of all time are arraigned before the living God. Every word, every deed, every thought, every act will be brought before the living God and probably brought to the forefront of people's minds by the Spirit of God, and they will see that they are worthy of judgment. 
There'll be no bravado on that day. You know, I love Winston Churchill as a leader, and I sure hope he repented. But in his biography that I read years ago, I underscored it. He said, I am, when he was asked if he was ready to meet God, he said, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. There'll be no swagger before this throne. Every mouth will be shut. And the Spirit of God in judgment will not be offering a tongue of fire to communicate because there'll be no evangelism and no second chances in heaven. He will not be coming like an illuminating warm torch or like the flutter of a dove. He will be coming in judgment with the Father and the Son. And so he speaks of the seven spirits of God who are present. Notice also the four living creatures of praise are present. The four living creatures of praise are here as well. In verse 6 and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, this is another one of those places where human vocabulary just seems inadequate. And so he's trying to describe the, the shimmering floor in this awesome courtroom, this throne room of God. A good architect will often put a uh, reflecting pond in, in front of one of his works of art in order to magnify and double the beauty by reflecting it during the day. Well, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, the old King James has four beasts, and that was a good translation for the 17th century, but not today. Uh, the New King James, like the NASB, says four living creatures. It's the word Zohar. It refers to a living creature, not some beast like Godzilla. And certainly it's not some beast like the Antichrist who's called the beast, which is an entirely different Greek word. These are four living creatures. And you will find these four living creatures described also by the prophet Ezekiel, where they are called cherubim. Cherubim, like other angels who, for instance, can take on human form. The Bible says you can entertain an angel and not know it. Cherubim apparently can also change their form and the way they look. And they are a high class of angels. Ephesians 6 says that, and you would expect it, God being a God of order, that angels are organized. Even fallen angels are organized. They're organized by rank and file. Lucifer was once a cherubim. He was once one of these angels in this high rank, the anointed cherub. Cherub is the singular, cherubim is uh, the dual or the plural, depending on how it's uh, used in the original. But these are not little cupids with wings, little babies. Angels don't have angel babies with one another. We'll be like angels in heaven. The Bible says we won't procreate. God made a fixed number of angels never to create anymore. But these angels, these four living creatures, are real angelic beings, and they are awe-inspiring, and the way God created them communicates a message that you don't want to miss. And next week, we'll look at the message those angels are conveying as we continue our study of Revelation and the message from chapter 4 entitled, A Glimpse of Heaven. We hope you're learning much from our study in the Revelation. We know that this book of the Bible can be particularly challenging, and so we invite you to listen again to this or any of the messages in this series. 
It's easy to do. Simply download and use the Search the Scriptures app from the iTunes and Google Play Store, or visit our recently redesigned website at searchthescriptures.org. If you prefer, you can order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478. Simply ask for program REV11. Whichever way you listen, would you also consider supporting this teaching ministry with a one-time or recurring gift? Your financial support allows us to introduce men and women, young and old, to Jesus Christ and to grow believers in their relationship with Him. Thank you. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our glimpse of heaven as we search the Scriptures.